Lord. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. But why does he incite David against them, saying, Go, number Israel. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aroer, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you just for your graciousness in giving us your word. We thank you for um, the way that we see through history and through these stories um, that you are sovereign and that you are um, able to increase the number of men and decrease the number of men at your will. We thank you that among the hundreds of thousands and millions of people, that you care for each and every one of us. And we just pray that we would have uh, the humility to recognize the awesomeness of that cross and to praise you for it. Pray for Mark, that you would just give him grace and uh, wisdom as he speaks to us today. And pray for each of us to have receptive hearts. In your name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It is our last... Well, I mean, up front, hopefully we're going to continue to read 2 Samuel sometime in our life. But up front, this is our last Sunday that we're working through First and 2 Samuel. It's been, well, since 1 Samuel, so probably over two years, two and a half years, that we've been um, with breaks for summer and things like that. Um, and uh, starting next week, we're going to hit the first two verses in Jude. Um, and before you freak out, Jude only has one chapter, and we're going to be doing it all summer. So, First and Second Samuel, the book of Samuel. How do we conclude this? Or maybe a better way to say it is, okay, this is great. We've gone through the book. We've seen how God has worked. We see the history that's behind um, this uh, <clears throat> behind this book. So, great. Why? What's, what's the focus of this book? In other words, what, what is God trying to do through these words to teach his people Israel back in that time? Remember, the original audience is Judah, who's in exile in Babylon. And then bringing it forward to us, which we try to do every week, right? We bring it to us through that path and trying to understand, well, what does this passage mean? And we're going to do that with this chapter, but we're also going to conclude the whole book in and of itself. What is the purpose of the book? What is God wanting to teach his people through his word? Well, one of the things today specifically is to ask ourselves a question, which is, I think, this question is probably something you've, you've said yourself. I know I've said it myself, or, or you've heard it from somebody before. What is the purpose behind the bad things that happen in life? And that's kind of been the theme the last few weeks, right? The death of a loved one, the diagnosis of cancer, financial troubles, the ending of a marriage, a car accident, and we could just keep going on and on and on. When for the audience of this book, that question 
what is the purpose behind the bad things that happen in this life? Judah is in exile in Babylon. What's, what's the purpose of their exile? Why would God keep them away from the promised land for so long? Or in the case of David, here in chapter 24, what good can come out of these situations? And this situation that he has found himself in. Now, our passage this morning guides us to an answer. And the bad thing that we find in this chapter, lo and behold, is David's sin. So that's, that's what we're getting to, starting in verse 10. But these first nine verses, they seem pretty innocent, right? From the first verse of this chapter, we see that God is angry with Israel and he incites David to take a census. Now, in First Chronicles, this uh, first and second Chronicles follow the same path of uh, of history. Um, there's purpose and reason behind that, but it, it tells the same event in First Chronicles 21 as in Second Samuel 24. It tells us that it was Satan who incited David to take the census. Now, this could be a major issue, right? Because you go, well, the Bible contradicts itself. No, the Bible does not contradict itself. The Bible never contradicts itself, and if it looks like a contradiction, we don't understand it, or we're reading it wrong. There's something wrong with us and our interpretation of it. And so when it says, how can, well, how can both God incite David and Satan incite David? Well, the answer is that though Satan is powerful, and though Satan has dominion over this earth, he is not above God. Satan is still a created being. He can try to scare us, and he's more powerful than us, but he is not over God. That means that even Satan is subordinate to God. And so here, God incites David to take the census by sovereignly allowing and working through Satan to incite David to sin. Okay, let your brain kind of settle in that. God, in his sovereignty, incites David to take the census by sovereignly allowing and working through Satan to incite David to take the census. But what about the census was so sinful? That's, that's another question, right? It's just a census. Well, the census itself is not prohibited by the law, and so the mere act of a census is not sinful. What's sinful was the motivation behind the census, and now frustratingly, as we have found throughout 2 Samuel, we're not told exactly what David, or why David, felt the need to count the people. There are just some hints towards his motivation. He asks Joab, his commander, to count the people, and so Joab counts the people, they come back, they find 1,300,000 men who drew the sword. Specifically, men who drew the sword. Not people total, not men, women, and children. And this seems to point to David's focus on his power in his desire to know how large of an army can he muster. How powerful am I, really? But whatever the reason, once the deed is done, David immediately knows that he's sinned against God. He knows 
this was wrong. Even though Joab warned him, and he ignored Joab, which tends to happen too, right? David does those things like, don't do this, I'm going to do it anyway, and then he gets in trouble for it. Well, so let's start in verse 10, 10 through 17, and read the consequences of David's sin. Verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angels stretched, angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, and said, Behold I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. In typical David fashion, his heart regrets his actions, and he immediately seeks forgiveness forgiveness from the Lord, which is one of the things that set him out from Saul, the former king of Israel. He says, please take away the iniquity of your servant. Take away the sin that I have committed for I have done very foolishly. This is the right attitude of the heart. But David, of all people, also knows that forgiveness of sin does not remove sin's consequences. Because sin has to be judged. It has to be dealt with. Upon hearing David's prayers, God gives him three options. Three years of famine, three months fleeing from his enemies, or three days of pestilence and plague. And again, in typical David fashion, he puts himself in the hands of God, basically asking God to make the choice, just don't make me flee from, don't put me in the hands of man, don't let me flee from my enemies, but do what you need to do. And David does this, he tells us, because he knows that God is merciful, and maybe God will relent at some point. But over three days... 70,000 men of Israel die. Only then is the mercy of God revealed. As the angel of the Lord is about to enter the city of Jerusalem with the plague, God finally intervenes. In his mercy, he commands the angel to stop at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And in the meantime, David has no idea of God's actions 
And seeing the suffering of his people, he pleads with God to spare Israel and to punish him alone. But God has other plans, which are actually good for David and good for Israel. And that's the rest of the chapter, verses 18 through 25. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So David is commanded to go to the threshing floor and to raise an altar to the Lord. And though Arana, uh, Arana offers to give David the site, David refuses. As my Bible study notes says, while God's grace and forgiveness are free, David understands that proper worship of God is never to be cheap or careless. God deserves our best. He deserves our first fruits. And so David buys the threshing floor for, for a fair price. He builds an altar. He offers burnt and peace offerings on, the, on it to the Lord. And these offerings, this plea for the land was received and accepted by God and the plague was averted from Israel. So what good came out of David's sin? And it's important for us to remember that, first of all, the ways of God are far beyond us. We see what is right in front of us. It's like we have blinders on to the rest of, uh, of the world, the rest of life, the rest of eternity. But God sees the big picture. We see dimly. He sees it clearly and eternally. He sees all. He is working in all things, and he's working those things toward his desired end. And in this case, the next step toward this end is found at the threshing floor of Arana. For at that place, at that spot where David offers these sacrifices, on this mountain, which is called Mount Moriah, Solomon will build the temple of the Lord. David builds the altar, which will initially be used to make sacrifices for the temple. God used and worked through David's sin to reveal the place where God's people would and could properly worship him 
as he desires. Now, if you're like me, I hear that and I go, well, I mean, if he's God, couldn't he find another way to do that? Why does he have to work through the sin? Why can't he just tell David, hey, you see that over there? Go buy that threshing floor. I'm going to build my, my temple over there. That's, that's what I would think. Oh, that's what I have thought. And you would think, you're God. You could do that. Why would you have to allow or David to sin and use that, kill 70,000 people in order to make that happen? And the only answer I have, you and I aren't God. <laughs> We're not God. We are not sovereign. We do not see all things. We do not control all things. And so who are we to tell a holy and righteous God what is right and wrong? That's, let that sink in. We may not like what God does, and we may think it's stupid, because we're human. <laughs> but we also need to realize we do not know the big picture. We do not see what is actually happening behind the scenes. But God is not only there, but he's orchestrating it all to one end. And it is always right, and it is always good. In Acts 4.24, God is called the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In 1 Timothy 6.15, he's called the one who is blessed and only sovereign, who, the one who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, God is the sovereign. He is the King, and he is the Lord of all creation, including you and me, including our life and what we are living, including Satan. All things, all people are subordinate and under his control and his purpose. And we see this throughout Scripture. This is, this is not something I'm just making up. This is not found only here in Second Samuel. God raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of freeing his people from slavery. God used and caused Pharaoh's stubbornness and hardness of heart to show his power to the nations, God's power to the nations. God allowed Satan to bring suffering upon Job, even initiating the conversation by suggesting to him, hey, have you considered my servant Job? God started that. And God gave him permission to bring suffering upon him. God used the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Persians to reduce the number of Israel to a faithful remnant. God used Pilate and Herod to bring about the death of Jesus, his only begotten son. You see, we tend to forget that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, meaning that God is still the sovereign. He is still the king and ruler and lord of all things. And so when bad things happen, when struggles happen, when horrible and horrific circumstances come into the world or come into our life, as his people, don't forget who's really in control, which is why, which is why we can be content in all things, as Paul says, because we know the one who is in charge. And so God is sovereign, he's king, but he's also judge. It's true that he is merciful and he is forgiving and he is right, 
He shows grace to those who do not deserve it, but the wrath of God for sin has to be appeased. If God does not judge sin, he is not a righteous judge. Something has to happen. The debt has to be paid, and the requirement of that appeasement is death. And in the case of David's sin, it cost the lives of 70,000 men and the animals that were offered on the altar. Because sin against the holy God comes at a great price. God is sovereign, God is judge, but because of that, it means he works all things for good. He works all things for his good. We've, t- we've talked about this before. We could tend to take that passage and we just say, he works all things for good for me, which is true. But we tend to take that passage and we make it about us. See, it's all good for me. Why is it good for me? And it's only good for me because it's good for God. God works all things for his good, which is exactly what is good for those who love him. Which is why we can go through horrible circumstances and say, God's going to work this out for good. For the good of those around me, for the good of me, but for the good of him. And I want my king I want to accomplish and have accomplished what my king desires. And so it is good because I love my king. So what in the moment is horrifying, discouraging, heartbreaking in the end is going to be brought to good, but only for those who love him, for only those who serve the king, those who desire for the king to be made great, for those whose desire for his name to be spread amongst the nation, for him to get the credit and the honor and praise, the one who puts their trust in him, who believe and confess and submit themselves to him. He does good for those who love him. This chapter and the book as a whole, this points us to the problem of sin. We can tend to think of our sin and terms of being against one another, which is true. David's life is an example to us as seemingly innocent decisions, like taking a census or thinking of Bathsheba, just staying home when the army goes off to battle. Seemingly innocent. But from those innocent decisions, bad things happen, and they affect not only us, but the people around us. But David's life also reveals to us that our sin is ultimately against the holy God. How many times do we read that David, when he sins, he says, I have sinned against you, God. I have sinned against you. The punishment for such sin is great. Now, maybe you've heard this application before. I'm not condoning this. I just want you to use this as a a brain, working it through in your brain. Um, Punching someone is never a good thing unless you're a boxer and then it's mutual, right? Defending yourself, okay, maybe, but if I was to, depending on who you punch, there's greater consequences, right? 
Okay, if you, if you hit a brother or sister, that's bad. It's not good. Do not hit your brother or sister. But you're not going to be sent to jail for hitting your brother or sister, right? You're going to have severe consequences. But you're not, you're going to be, it's going to be left within the house, right? So it's like, okay, now what if you walked outside and you punched a perfect stranger? Well, you're probably going to get charged with assault. Okay. Now imagine the police officer walks up, Dan walks up in his uniform, and you punch Dan. What's going to happen? I'm going to get arrested, right? Yep. Oh, heck yeah, I'm going to get arrested. Okay, now imagine you walk up to the President of the United States, whoever he is, and you punch the President of the United States. What's going to happen? Yeah, it's going to be, you're going to get arrested, but there's going to be far worse consequences, right? consequences that existed when you're punching someone in authority is very different from when you're punching. It's all bad, but the consequences are different. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? So when we sin against a brother or sister of Christ, when we sin against another human being made in the image of God, it is bad. But when we sin against the God of the universe, the consequences are enormous. Maybe you've heard it this way. When, when we sin against an eternal God, it's an eternal sin, which requires an eternal consequence. And so what do we do to appease the eternal and righteous wrath of an eternal and holy God for our sin against Him? We sang that song like, I have... I have nothing to bring to God except filthy rags. Even the best of my choices, even the best of the things that I do are but filthy rags in His sight. In other words, to say, they're not enough. You ever try to clean your hands with an oil-ridden rag? It doesn't get you clean. I say, well, I mean, it's only got a little bit of oil on it. It's still a filthy rag. That is how it is with our sin between us and God. They are but filthy rags. We cannot cleanse ourselves. So what do we what do we do? And so to look again at David in this chapter, did you notice that David did not save Israel? Did you catch that? God saved Israel. God relented from the plague before David had even offered anything on the altar. Did you notice that? God relented from the plague before David did anything for the nation of Israel. The offerings that the animals, the offerings of the animals that David gave did nothing to save Israel. God saved Israel. And so it is with our sin. There is no work, there is no offering that we can give to God that is sufficient to stay God's hand. And so God knowing this, came down in the flesh from heaven and he willingly offered himself upon the altar of the Lord. He offered himself the perfect sacrifice and the Lord accepted that perfect offering and so gave his people, saved his people from his wrath through the sacrifice of his son, the true anointed king of the Lord. 
See, David was willing to sacrifice himself, was he not? When he says, he said, said, God, what, what did these sheep ever do? This is me. Put it on me and my household. That is the guilty wanting to die for the innocent. In Jesus Christ, the innocent died for the guilty. That's why Jesus is a better David. As noble of a heart as David has, he was not sufficient to save God's people. But Jesus Christ was. And through a horrible plague, God revealed the path to the temple. He revealed the place where he would reside with his people. And through the cross, the horrific death of Jesus Christ, God revealed the path to his presence for all eternity. For by grace we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by any works of our own so that we cannot boast. For they are but filthy rags. Whatever may happen in this life, knowing conversations I've had with just us as a church, family members as a church, and there's a lot of us that are going through some really, really hard times right now. It feels like more than in the eight and a half years that I've been here, it feels like more has kind of landed on us whether it's sickness or financial issues and so death of loved ones, diagnosis of cancer. Poor Al Jones is back in the hospital and he has an infection that could kill him. I mean, it just doesn't just feel like this weight. And when those circumstances, when those things happen in life, as God's people, we could become distracted. We could become angry. We become frustrated, and that's the natural human response. It's not a good response, but it's the natural response. And so in a sense, we need to be unnatural as God's people. And remember, whatever happens in this life, good and bad, none of it is beyond the power of God to work it to His good. And I've talked to some of you, and I've heard from your from your own mouth, all I've got to lean on right now is that God's going to work this for good. Because I don't see how he's going to do that. But I know he will. And how I know he will is because he promised that he will. He promised that he will work all things for his good, to his good, which is ultimately for our good. God has saved you. If you are a child of God, God has saved you. And so second, first and second Samuel teaches us, reminds us, He is your Savior. He is your Savior. For Judah, who's in exile in Babylon, they're away from their home. It feels like the promises God, of God are falling flat. Well, when are we going to get back? The people who came with us, they're, they're dropping like flies left and right. The new generation that's growing up, they don't know the promised land. They, they know Babylon. How was any good going to come out of this? And this book says, oh, but it will. The circumstance that you're in right now, Judah, is horrific, but I'm going to bring you home. 
and I'm going to work all things, and I'm going to save you as my people. Through the cross, Christ saved us. It all looked bad. What hope do we have? There's nothing we can do. We're lost. And God says, yeah, but I've sent my son, and I found you, and I've saved you by grace, not in anything that you've earned. And so worship me. Glorify me. Pronounce and speak and proclaim my name to the nations and the greatness of who I am. And remember, remember those who are unbelievers in our life and they don't know God? We can't expect them to understand. We cannot save them ourselves. We cannot say just the right word and then suddenly, because I'm so eloquent in my speaking, they're going to be saved. Thank goodness that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Thank goodness it doesn't work that way. All it is is speak the truth and let the power of God speak through us as his people. When we encounter difficult circumstances and we weep and we're angry and we cry and we're overwhelmed that deep down at the foundation of who we are, the people who do not know Christ see us and they say, how, how can you do this? I hate pointing people out, but how do you survive a husband and a son dying within a year of each other? How? By the grace of God. That's it. How do you survive the diagnosis of cancer? By the grace of God. How do you, how do you survive a, a dad who passes away suddenly for no reason whatsoever? By the grace of God. How are we saved from our sins that I can do nothing to appease the wrath of God by the grace of God? That's it. So as we wrap this up, as we wrap this, this book up, it is more than a history. It is a message of God to his people to say, I am with you and I have saved you. Put your trust in me. And when we live our lives that way, then that's when an unbelieving world, not all, some will see it. And maybe, just maybe, God will soften their hearts and he will save them and give us an opportunity to welcome them into the family of God. But Father, oh, but by your grace, but by your grace, can we look at the things in our life and say, you are going to work them for your good, which is for my good. I don't know how you're going to do it. It's not the way I would do it, but you are God and I am not, and I trust you. I don't know why you are doing these things, but I know who you are because you have told me. Help us to live that as your people, Father. And I pray that through that, just as you were a witness for the Gentiles through Judah coming back to the promised land eventually and their faithfulness, coming back to you and trusting you, 
I pray that our witness to the world around us, to unbelieving family and friends, that our life which is devoted to you, our life which is, uh, as we strive to live a life that is fully, fully devoted to you, in obedience and love for what you have done, that they would see that, Father, and that you would save them. We thank you that none of this depends on us because we are inadequate, God. But you are more than adequate. You are God. You are the sovereign of this universe. Help us, Father, to worship you properly with our lives. And in the end, an unbelieving world would see your glory through us. We ask this in your name. Amen.